this ball and bat Says I am the greatest player of them all Puts his bat on his shoulder And he tosses up his ball And the ball goes up and the ball comes down Swings his bat all the way around The world's so still you can hear the sound The baseball falls to the ground Now the little boy doesn't say a word. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm here today as your producer to announce a new show to our network. We're very excited to add legendary play-by-play man, Jerry Truppiano. Some of you have, may remember him from the Red Sox. He's also play-by-play with the Astros, the Expos, the Houston Oilers, the Houston Rockets in the NBA, did some work in the uh, in professional hockey, as well as the World Baseball Classic. He is a Hall of Famer in every sense of the word. Uh, Jerry adds a new show to our network called On the Record with Jerry Trupiano. Great, great guest list already, and we haven't even started yet. You're in store for a treat today. He hit a home run today, without a doubt. We are here with episode 306 on the network, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices, 50,000-plus subscribers. Subscribers, after this one, Make sure iHeartRadio knows they made a great selection picking Real Voices of the Game to be a part of their broadcasting world here. And with that, I'm going to introduce Jerry Truppiano here. And Jerry, why don't we just get right to our guest? I think we've got a great one in store, and let's not waste any time. And here it is, Jerry Truppiano. One. On this, our first journey, I wanted to have someone special to visit with. And, and a person who's been special in my life, special in a lot of folks' lives, and one of the legendary broadcasters in our industry. And on top of that, a great quality human being. And that's one of the things I want to talk about today. He's a great storyteller. And I want I want to hear some stories. And you learn have you learned some stories about Jim Nance. Jim, you're a wordsmith. You're a storyteller, right? Well, I'm very touched that you would say that, Troop, particularly given that you're my mentor and the guy that first really gave me a start in the business. So just trying to make you proud. So when I hear all of these uh, wonderful, nice things that you say, it means a lot. Well, talent breaks through and it was it was easy to see your talent. I'm going to I'm going to throw you tell stories about people. I want people to learn some stories about Jim Nance now. <laughs> We've been friends for a long time, and, I, and I, I know a lot about you, but I think people should know more than that friendly voice they hear from Augusta or at, at an NFL game or in the past at the, the NCAA basketball tournament. I'm going to throw a word at you, and I want you to tell me what it means to you. The word is tradition. Well, I happen to think tradition is a very vital part of the storytelling storytelling process in in sports broadcasting because it uh, it brings history into the equation and history brings context to what we're watching now. So I lean on it heavily. I happen to be involved in one sport that is, uh, I think, maybe at the head of the class: baseball or golf. Golf's a big part of my life. They both. Uh, rely heavily on traditions 
in history. And I've tried to bring that into virtually every broadcast I've ever worked. And it doesn't have to just be golf. I've tried to bring that into my NFL broadcasts. <laughs> and I, and I, I know that when I was a viewer, you know, dreaming of being in the business one day, I love to be taught. I love to be educated. I love for my mind to be opened up and to hear about great people and things and events of the past. And, um, uh, it's not just for me living play by play, 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 and just being totally in that moment. It's sprinkling in along the way some context. And that's what I've always tried to bring to the broadcast. The reason I picked the word tradition, and I'll see what you think here. I'm thinking of the original Jim Nance, <laughs> thinking of big Jim Nance, and being carried on by jimmy nance i'm thinking of jim nance carrying on the tradition of being a storyteller like the jim mckay's and and the jack whitakers of the past the the tradition of carrying on the the tradition of cbs nfl football of, of the ncaa basketball tournament of of the tradition of the golf coverage at cbs to me that kind of that kind of envelops you in the tradition that i was thinking of Agreed or disagree? Well, I think it definitely started with with my family, and I am the third, uh, James W. Nance the third. My grandfather, who died early in my life, was quite a sportsman, and he was actually in the New York Giants, the old baseball team before they moved west. He was in their farm system, uh, and he also was the captain of the College of Charleston basketball team. That before there was an NCAA tournament, uh, there was uh, a different way of settling who was the college basketball champion. I'm talking late 20s. And he took a College of Charleston team to then the Final Four and competed in Chicago. Uh, so he was a basketball, baseball, great athlete. Passed it on to my dad, who was a two-sport athlete at Guilford College in North Carolina. He was He was basketball and football. Uh, I I don't think I had their skill level in terms of uh, athletics, but I had their appreciation for love of sport and the honor of the game. And those things were always, I think, at the forefront of the way I was introduced to sport is doing things with honor and people that did things that that my father, you know, respected. And, it, and in some ways, you hope it, I'm, I'm, I'm not being critical here, but it seems sometimes like it's a little bit of a lost art. Um, we're in a culture now where people like hot takes. Mm -hmm. They like victims. They like to take people down and it doesn't matter. They can say hurtful things. And, and sometimes it feels like these hot takes are brought out for only their benefit to try to put their name and their brand on the map. Oh, look, this guy said this outrageous thing making a name for himself. I never wanted to make a name for myself. I, I just wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted to be able to go to these great championships of American sport and just get lost in the event itself and try to bring the viewer along so they would understand why this was important or why there was a subject there to root for, what made them special, what was in their heart. And I, I really do. I could trace it back. I mean, I learned that from my father who learned it from his father.
Yeah, that, that's what I wanted to get to when I talked about tradition, because I, I read your book, and I've known you forever. But learning 43 years, 43 years, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was three, and you were a year and a half. Exactly <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but re reading your book, I didn't know about your grandfather, but he became a, a postmaster in a little town in North Carolina and right. engaged people. And I knew your dad. And your dad was gregarious. He was fun. He, everybody was his friend. And that comes down to you now and and the way you connect with people. Because it is a connection, is it not? Uh, I've, I try to make it feel very personal, like I'm talking to each and individual, each individual person out there. Um, I don't want to play broadcaster. I don't want to be sounding like someone other than who I am. In other words, I don't want my voice to be pitched at a level that sounds like a broadcaster. Mm -hmm. I'll be the guy that happens to live next door. Um, golf really puts you in that sweet spot of being super conversational because you're not fighting ambient sound and raucous crowds and energy waves and all that. You have to fight through with basketball and football um but yes i do think that that is that is always the way i've approached it as i i feel i want to have a relationship with the viewer and Go ahead. you know i i felt that as a young boy you mentioned whitaker and mckay and these voices of our youth i felt like i knew them Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, life takes these interesting twists and turns, I got to know them. In fact, I think both of those gentlemen, I delivered the eulogy at their funerals. And I mean, when I was a young boy, I wrote them fan mail. Mm -hmm. I wrote them letters. So because I felt like I knew them. And I thought they would be accepting of somebody writing a personal letter of admiration. So um, I feel... It's weird to talk about having fans because that makes me feel like I'm putting myself in a place that I don't want to be. I don't want to be a celebrity. I don't want to be put on any kind of different level than anyone else. I'm just a I'm just a guy that you know lives a pretty normal life away from it all. Yes, I've gotten a lot of great experience that have come with it, but I just want to be like everyone else. I want I don't want to be viewed like I think I belong on some sort of. Uh, different planet or level I'm, I'm i'm a father and uh you know try to be a great friend to a lot of people and that's who i am let, let me tell the listening audience here having known jim nance for 43 years he speaks the truth and that's that's the that's the individual i met as a 19 year old and the same individual today and credit goes to big jim nance and we can't forget we can't forget doris no, we can't forget my mom. I know I wrote a book about my dad, as you know, you mentioned it already, always by my side. And it was, uh, I think the thing I'm the most proud of is that I wrote a book about my, my father. I always intended to write a book about my mom and, uh, because there's equal love there, of course, for both of them. And she was just as kind, sweet and warm and friendly as, uh, as my dad was, and she passed away a year ago yesterday. Oh, sorry. You've known my family a long time, like we said. And thank you for saying such wonderful things about them and remembering them. But my sister, I have one sibling, Nancy, you know Nancy, mm -hmm. and she and her husband, Don, came up from Houston this week so that we could be together. We both have been grieving quite a bit for a year at the loss of 
my mother, who I just happen to have right there. Uh, she died a year ago yesterday, and I, I didn't want to be alone on that on that day, and nor did Nancy. So we we honored her, I think, the best we could. We we there talked about it all day. Oh, it was just amazing. It was just it was just an amazing thing. You know, you get older, uh, troop and listeners. It's amazing how often you deal with death more so than you do when you're in your thirties. It's just becomes such a part of the life cycle, life experience. And when, when you don't have either one of your parents around anymore, it, it, it hit me hard. I'm not going to kid you. My mom watched everything. I think you are now the next one up that watches everything that I do. And you're so gracious about always calling me after one of those shows. Those mean a lot. Words of encouragement and support. It didn't matter where I was. She looked at it as a visit with Jimmy. And it, and she loved when I worked golf because golf is on Saturday and Sunday. So she would get two days that week. Yeah. And make sure she had the NFL package. And so she could get my game if it was not being fed into the Houston market. She didn't miss a show. She died. Uh, interesting. I was calling a New England at Green Bay football game. And a year ago, it was this game was actually October the 2nd. And it went to overtime at Lambeau Field, and uh, Packers won on the last play of overtime on a Mason Crosby field goal. Sign off the air. My phone rings. It's my sister saying, Jimmy, you got to get down here to Houston. Mom's having a heart attack. They're, they're rushing her to the hospital. I wanted to wait till you got off the air. So I found out later that all of this was happening. The paramedics were in. Here's the short of the story, how her dedication. And... They put her on a gurney and they're taking her out and Crosby's over the field goal attempt. And she tells the paramedics, stop, stop, stop before you go. And she's craning her neck, laying on the, on the gurney. She says, that's coming down to the last play of the game. She didn't care who won. She said, I just want to hear how my boy calls it. That's great. So she stuck around for one last call and she went to the hospital and, and passed away the next morning. And I, I got there in time to be holding her along with my oldest, Caroline, and my sister, Nancy. We got to be there with her at the end. But life, uh, you know, brings all these uh, twists and turns. But my parents are always they're right in my heart. And that's that's all, that's how you, you know, you find ways to deal with it, and cope with it. And I just feel like they're with me everywhere I go. They're, they're front row seat. They're right in my heart. They raised you right. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit more about life and, and other elements of your life the hardest interview you had to do i think had its roots in 1977 if i remember and unfolded in 1992 right oh Fred ready winning the masters yeah started, started in 1977 well we showed up uh, in august of 77 as incoming freshmen on dave williams decorated university of houston golf golf team which would win 16 national championships in 30 years. The biggest, uh, most winningest coach in NCAA history was my golf coach. And he put the seven freshmen in a room and asked them to introduce themselves one at a time. Tell us where you're from and what your goal is in life. And uh, he, he chose me to speak first. I, I guess he thought I could, I was confident enough to do that. Not overconfident, but confident. And I stood up and said, I'm Jim Nance. And, my goal in life is to one day work for CBS. I want to broadcast the Masters tournament. And I love the way they 
broadcast the NFL. That's my goal. So I felt pretty good about it. They were supposed to be short and sweet, name, rank, and serial number. About the fourth guy that stood up uh, bashfully said, I'm Fred Couples. I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I want to one day win the Masters tournament. Right away, but we eventually ended up being in the same four-person dorm suite on the Houston campus with Blaine McAllister and John Horn. We had the best time. Still all stay in touch. Very close. Freddie's birthday was yesterday. Um, of course, we communicated. And we're 64 now, but we were, we were, I was 18, was 17 when, when we were first introduced. And yeah, we went from dreaming about a goal that would land in the same place, Augusta National Golf Club, to where we even on occasion, I'm not, I don't want to embellish it, but a few times, once or twice, maybe, um, we imitated the green jacket ceremony. We, we play acted, rehearsed it. April 12th, 1992. Now we're adults. We're 32 years old. Freddie won the masters and I was there to present him the green jacket, just as we had declared in that room day one at the university of Houston. You know, as I tell that story now, which I've told a few times through the years, I just realized with Freddie turning 64 yesterday, and that was 32 years ago. That was half a lifetime ago for both of us. Love that. You put that those was- numbers together. That's one of your trademarks. Yeah. You you find you find little nuggets like that. Yeah, I- it's a half a lifetime ago. We we were, like I said, we were in our teens and we were obsessed with these goals in our lives and we cheered each other on. We made it all sound very believable and doable. There was no snarky, yeah, you're going to win the Masters and I'm going to fly to the moon. There was no second guessing or doubting or sarcasm. Cynicism did not exist in our world. Belief and hope and building people up did. We were, that was, that was who we were, who we are. And I think that well, I, I'll let Fred speak to it himself one day, uh, but I, I know that my career wouldn't have happened without a lot of fingerprints, including yours, including Freddie, Blaine, and John's, building me up and believing in me. You know, there weren't doubters. I was surrounded by people who championed me and this crazy idea that one day I want to work for CBS. And I'd like to think that, in Fred's case, that he was empowered by all of us believing that one day he would be wearing a green jacket. And sure enough, it happened. And we got to go before the world and do that entire green jacket presentation with millions of people watching from 206 countries and territories around the world. I remember somebody saying that that year, the breadth of of that ceremony goes way beyond just the U.S. audience. When they come in for the green jacket ceremony, it goes worldwide, whether it fits the language or not. It's running in Japan and Germany and Australia and all parts here and there. And people got to watch two kids that uh, fostered a dream at uh, the University of Houston and see it come to life. Like your dad, you like to champion un- underdogs and and, and 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 stories that may not be headline. And I know he got a little bit embarrassed about this story, but I think it's worth telling. It, it speaks of you. There was a tradition that you started that I, you didn't want known, but it became became public knowledge. 
the name Corey Brewer. You want to oh, yeah. Want to explain that? Well, I, I always took a lot of thought into a tie or I would broadcast a show. I could still feel my father's hands when I was a young boy before church and tying the tie from behind. And every time I put my tie on, it's a moment where he comes to the front of mine. And we had an opening ceremony event at the final four in, it must've been like 06. And um, I met that Florida team that went on to win a national championship. And they had a, a player who's had a long NBA career, Corey Brewer. And their sports information director said to me that uh, he was a fan and that this was a special occasion. He hasn't had many times in his life where he's worn a tie. I think that was the word I got. They won the championship, and I went out on the floor after the game. And I just thought, I'm going to give him my necktie. I just called the game. It just is an ex ex expression of admiration for him. And I didn't think twice about it until the following year, they came back to the final four again and won and repeated. And I happened to mention to the, to Fred, the sports information director, one of them be the AD at North Carolina state. And I said, Hey, what did that tie that, that I gave Corey? Did, did you ever hear about that? He gets to hear about it. It hangs on the hook at the McConnell center in his locker. He looks at it every day. Well, my gosh, now I just realized it meant something to him. I had no idea that it would mean something. It was just a small gesture of, of friendship and appreciation. So I started giving the tie away to somebody without cameras around and certainly didn't want any attention to it at all. And I started thinking it should go to someone at this point who uh, represented kind of the ideals I thought of college athletes should. Great teammate, student, um, and, and, you know, there, there were some really super guys along the way that I handed a tie off to, um, whether it be Quinn Cook or Peyton Siva from Louisville, or it goes on and on and on. There were a bunch of guys through the years. And it was all a good story for about 10 years internally until uh, one year I gave a tie to uh, Ryan Archie Diacono from Villanova. Wonderful guy, still in the NBA. Wonderful guy. And he happened to take the necktie. They had just won on a shot at the buzzer to beat North Carolina, 2016. And he wore the tie around his neck, not, not tied, not knotted, but just around his neck to the press conference. Somebody asked him what the tie was. And he explained that, that I had come over on the floor after we'd gone off the air and given it to him and had expressed how much I admired him as the captain of this team, his leadership and what he meant. And he was all in on it. It was a very sweet thing he said. Well, some writers, it's just, you know, some bloggers, I can't even tell you the site, I don't know, but took exception to it and turned that into uh, a very negative story, which became all about me trying to bring attention to myself, which is the last thing I ever wanted. Um, yeah, I, can't, I think had he not been asked on the, on the press conference, but maybe still marched on, but um, I can remember the next year, The Ringer actually sent a reporter out to talk to all the ones I'd given a tie to and interviewed me. And it was a, you could tell it was like an investigative type trying to find something very negative out of it. Why on earth would Jim want to present his sweaty tie? Like I'm sitting there down the broadcast. Yeah. So absurd. Um, it meant a lot to the kids. It, he went in 
admit admitted he was a great writer and he and, and he maybe he had a position going in, but he was flexible enough to be able to 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 in the end understand it. You know, he talked to uh, some of the kids talking about how it's in their trophy case and, and how it's one of the symbols of their career whatever i don't want to embellish that at all but in every case every kid he talked to that had received the tie it had meant something i never restored it um because i i didn't like the fact it was drawing attention to me um and i was i was uncomfortable with it and for about two or three more final fours i'd call the game i'd come up from my broadcast position and run up on the floor to go give the trophy away and i had camera crews following me you know, wanting to watch me actually take the tie off and hand it to someone. And I didn't like that. Yeah. I, not the story. You know, I, I, I'm just a guy there trying to tell someone else's story. And, and, and it made me really uncomfortable. But it had a nice, life, nice lifespan. And I thought when I did it, my dad was late stages Alzheimer's when I started it. And he passed during that stretch of 10, 11 years when I did it. I, I always thought my dad would have been very proud that I did that. So... You know, it was a victory for me because it was a it was a move my father would have endorsed. Uh, you, you've had dinner with Queen Elizabeth. You've had dinners and and hung out with presidents, plural presidents. And I'll, in our last couple of minutes here, because I know you're in a time crunch, talk about your work trying to find a cure for Alzheimer's. I know that's well, near and dear to you. I've got another meeting here uh, today, and it's just it's. Uh, it's a big part of my life away from the broadcast booth and the preparation is that in Houston on the heels of writing always by my side about my father. It was about a family coping with the patriarch of the family suffering from uh, this insidious disease called Alzheimer's and how there's this caregiving part of it. My, my mother and sister giving up their lives to look after dad and protect him, protect his dignity, uh, dignity. Uh, I wrote the book about how our family coped with it, and the book ended up having uh, quite an audience, which I didn't know how all this would work, but it it did really well. It was an instant New York Times bestseller, and it, uh, it, it ranked as high as number three overall, not just sports category overall in the New York Times bestseller list. So I knew that it had galvanized that caregiving side um, of... Uh, of that world, uh, which the caregiving side of it crosses, uh, unfortunately, a lot of universes. And um, and I think that's always they're underappreciated. They're heroes. So I, 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 I knew I needed to do something with my life uh, troop other than I'm talking about my way from my family. I needed to do something that was going to make a difference. I, I do a lot of charity work, and I felt like if I'm doing 70 charity days a year for 70 different charities, it's nice and it's helpful. But how about if I made that hundred days a year where I work on something that's that that's meaningful to me and I can really feel like I can make a difference. It can be a voice for it. I can champion it. So the short of it is we open not not a foundation. We open an actual Alzheimer's Research and Clinical Care Institute at Houston Methodist Hospital and named it after my father. It's called the Nance National Alzheimer's Center. Anybody interested wants to find out more, Nance friends n-a-n-t-z friends.org we have um we're 12 years now we've been open 
And I know it's subjective about who has the best research institute. Mass General, for example, up your way, we interface with them quite a bit. I, um, UCSF out in, in California is huge. But I would put our research institute up with any in the world in 12 years. And in the last year, there's been some, finally, some good news to spread about inroads into this terrible disease. And I'm proud to say that we were right there on the front lines administering these trials that got approved by the FDA for one drug called lecanemab and another drug called denanemab. So I spent a good part of my life running around making speeches for Alzheimer's, trying to raise money, raise awareness. Um, you know, I went to Houston Methodist Hospital and I said, I want to put my dad's name on the building. Uh, I, I want it to be about him. I want his voice to be heard. I'm just the conduit. I, 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 want, I want my dad, who's never in an interview like this. I don't think he ever had a microphone in front of him. I wanted his life to represent hope for people. And I, I feel good about the progress we're making. I told them in Houston, I personally guaranteed I would raise $5 million in 10 years. I guaranteed it myself. We're over 30 million. And it's, and it's soaring. Now it's multiplying because we're the results, the funding, people want to come down to Houston to the Nance National Alzheimer's Center because we're selling something that people want, and that is hope. And we're and we've got results and we're aggressive, cutting edge. You know, we don't have time to sit around and 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 take this slowly. I have a mission statement. This was what I said the first time I went to him. This is the goal. Before I take my last breath, I want to know that I was a part of a team. It's not going to just happen in Houston. It's going to happen at all these great facilities. I've mentioned a few of them. We're all collaborative. I want to be a part of that team. That was a part of the process that defeated the opponent that defeated my dad. And then I can take that last breath with a smile on my face. Well, Doris and Big Jim are smiling down from heaven on you, proud of you. Those who have known you or know you, proud of you too. Jim, thanks for the time. Drew, I love you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm always proud to be able to do anything that has your name on it. I wish you all the best. Thank you. We love Thank you too. All the best. Jim Nance. Dave D'Agostino, take it away. Jerry and Jim, thanks so much for a beautiful interview. I think our audience got a treat there. Not just some, some great information and great stories about the, the great Jim Nance, but also lessons on family, tradition, humility, and hope. Uh, our audience, please support the Nance National Alzheimer's Center and, and the work that Jim is doing for millions out there who suffer, but also in memory of his father. And the love that you two have for one another as friends is just just amazing. And I only hope that our audience of 50,000 plus subscribers in 74 countries and iHeartRadio got a sense today of the type of show that Jerry's going to bring on and the type of relationships that he's built and why he's so special, not just to our sports community, but to our communities in general. So Jerry, again, thanks so much for putting your heart out there. Jim Nance, uh, nobody better. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that. Thanks so much for all you've done for sports what you're doing for Alzheimer's, and what you've done for our audience today. Thanks again, guys. Episode 306, Real Voices of the Game, on the record with Jerry Truppiano in the books.
in a baseball hat stands in the field with his ball and bat says I am the greatest player of them all puts his bat on his shoulder and he tosses up his ball and the ball goes up and the ball comes down swings his bat all the way around the world's so still you can hear the sound the baseball falls to the ground.